We're in Daniel chapter 6 this evening. We're going verse by verse through the book of Daniel. We find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 6. We're all familiar with the old movie trope where the villain comes looking for the good guys and then the good guys try to turn out their lights as fast as they can so as not to be seen. Never works though, right? They always find them anyway. That scene never ends with, and then the bad guys leave. There's always like a chase or a break in the window or whatever. So even though it never works, it especially wouldn't work for the good guys to keep their lights on or knowing that the killer was closing in to just go about their regular activities, right? As viewers, if they were doing that, uh, we would think that is unbelievable and irrational. No one would act that way. But in Daniel 6, that's exactly what we see our hero do. With full awareness of the very real threats coming for him, Daniel doesn't draw the shades, he doesn't dim his lights, he goes right on living the way he's always lived, and the result is one of the most famous stories in all the Old Testament. Now, as we've been noting for the last few weeks, at this point, Daniel is in his 80s at least, he's toward the end of his life. And we talked about this at the very beginning of our studies in the book of Daniel. The book's divided up into two halves. Chapters one through six um, are the narrative portion, telling these stories uh, of Daniel. And then chapters seven through 12 are the prophetic portion, that detailed visions that he has and some conversations he has with angels. Now I find it interesting that Daniel's greatest story is found in the last chapter of his narrative book, right, in the, his, in the last chapter of his life, as it were. This is the end of the narrative history of Daniel's life here in chapter 6, and his greatest story comes at the end. His life is proof positive that God can do great and mighty things through young people, through old people, through people in middle age, through people in good position, through people in bad position. It's not about a particular demographic. It's not if you look a certain way or if you um, are in a certain class or if you're in a certain age group or anything like that. It's not about a demographic. It's about the inclination of a heart. God could use Daniel when he was uh, freshly taken as a captive slave uh, into Babylon. He could use Daniel when he was prime minister of the entire world empire. He could use Daniel as an uh, older man in retirement. He could use Daniel in any of those situations. Now at the end of chapter five, the kingdom of Babylon had fallen and in its place, the Medo-Persian empire had immediately risen to power. It was a fairly smooth transition with almost no loss of life other than King Belshazzar. In fact, here's a part of the account of the transition taken from an artifact discovered by archeologists. This is called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's this clay cylinder and it has this cuneiform inscription on it. Um, obviously, you know, we are gonna have to take it with a grain of salt because it's gonna talk about how Marduk, the God accomplished all of these things. But here is a description of how that transition from Babylon to Medo-Persia went. The inscription reads, Marduk, which is a pagan god, ordered Cyrus to march against his city Babylon. Cyrus's widespread troops strolled along, their weapons packed away. Without any battle, he made him enter Babylon, sparing Babylon any calamity. Marduk delivered into Cyrus's hands Nabonidus, the king who did not worship him. And other ancient historians back up this fact, and we talked about this in the previous chapter. 
that when the Persians finally breached through the walls of Babylon, there was no fighting. Uh, Everybody was drunk out of their mind. Their soldiers didn't fight back at all. They waltzed right in. They took control. They killed King Belshazzar, and the kingdom of Babylon fell. Now, as our chapter opens, King Darius is now in charge, and he's figuring out how to establish his new administration of this empire. Verse 1, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. We'll hear the word satrap a bunch tonight. These guys were like governors over states. Over in the book of Esther, we see that uh, King Ahasuerus had um, over the empire 127 different provinces, and even though the times don't line up exactly, you know, the, effectively the, the whole empire of uh, Persia, Medo-Persia, from India down to Ethiopia was broken up into these different regions or states, and satraps were over each of them. And so it seems that they would have been guys who were already part of the leadership of Babylon prior to the Persian takeover. And that makes sense. Uh, when Darius came in and these, uh, the Persian rulers came in, they didn't want to just wipe everybody out. Uh, they wanted it to be a pretty smooth transition. And so it made sense, hey, we're going to use some of the people that are already uh, in charge in the government here who already know how things are running. Uh, there's a new sheriff in town, but now you guys work for us. And so these 120 guys would have already been a part of the leadership in Babylon. In our text tonight, there are three different characters we can kind of zoom in on and learn from. Each one of these characters will become living examples of a variety of principles we're given in Scripture. Uh, We have, of course, Daniel, who's always a wonderful example for us as believers. Uh, We're believers who want to honor God, and we want to be used by God, and so Daniel is a great, great, great example. Every time Daniel shows up, pay attention to what he's doing, how he's doing it, because that's the kind of believer we want to be. Daniel, in this story, is going to demonstrate for us a variety of biblical truths, Uh, For example, here's just one of them. John 15, 19 tells us, if you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. And Daniel's going to become a living, real-life example of that spiritual truth that Jesus gave us as his people. Another principle Daniel's going to live out for us is found in verses like Jeremiah 29, 12, and 13. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. We'll also see this group of satraps as a character. They kind of work as a hive unit, as a group. They hunt in a pack, and so they're like one big, uh, scary character. They are the wicked men who are the enemies of Daniel. Now, by the end of the story, they become a real-life demonstration of what we read about in Proverbs 1, specifically starting at verse 11 and then going to the end of the chapter. I'd encourage you to just sort of make a footnote or find your way over to Proverbs 1 at some point if you get bored with what I'm talking about. And you see Proverbs 1, 11 through about 18, and it talks there about about sinners who lie in wait to shed innocent blood, who live for greed and who are setting traps, but in the end they fall into their own trap and and, uh, bring destruction upon themselves. These guys live that out for us. They are a real life example of that spiritual truth. And then there's Darius, a third character. He's the king who becomes a living example of what we read in Galatians 6.8 where Paul told us that those who sow to the flesh, well, you're going to reap corruption. You sow to your flesh, it's not going to go well for you. And Darius demonstrates for us how unbelievers... Uh, no matter what 
state they're in or no matter what strata they're in, they're held captive by the devil. And when you're held captive by the devil, you're going to get taken advantage of. You are blind to your own powerlessness. Uh, You're just in a world of hurt. And Darius, for all of his position and all of his power and all of his influence, he gets absolutely jerked around. He's like the rag doll in this story who doesn't even realize that he's blind to what's going on, powerless to do anything about it, and guilty of uh, great evil uh, because he becomes an accomplice to this crime. Now, as the text opens, we're told that it pleased Darius to install these guys into these positions of power. And it makes sense. He's the king, and he's the guy in charge. He says, well, what do I want to do? What seems good to me? What pleases me to set up here in my new kingdom? You know, when our fallen human mind is at the wheel of our lives, uh, terrible consequences inevitably follow. That's just a spiritual truth. We know that from personal experience, but that's something that the Lord is really upfront telling us about. He says, hey, you know, when you're at the wheel of your own life, when your uh, fallen human heart is in charge of your decisions and in charge of your thinking and your attitudes and your responses, bad consequences are inevitably going to follow because the human heart is deceitful and wicked, uh, wicked to a level that we can't even understand. What pleased Darius today will find is going to greatly displease him tomorrow. Daniel uses the two words specifically. And more than that, we see Darius, because he was following a self-serving, self-pleasing heart, he was going to find himself guilty of a truly heinous injustice. It's not what he had planned to do. It's not even what he really wanted to do. If you asked him, hey, do you want to be the kind of king that takes your very best citizen who's an innocent man and sentences him to a gruesome, torturous death, he would say, of course I don't. But then you have to pause and realize, okay, but your sinful heart is what's in charge of your life And that sinful heart is going to lead you down a path that seems right to you, but in the end, it's the way of death. And so the human heart, apart from the Lord, uh, does these things. It deceives, it distracts, it debases, and it destroys. And Darius is a living example of that. Now, as Christians, we read those three little opening words, it pleased Darius, and immediately it should sort of cause us to stop and remind ourselves what we're called to. Because we live in a time and a place and a culture where we can do all sorts of things to please ourselves, right? And life in uh, the modern world, in this great land of freedom that we're in, we can orient our whole lives around pleasing ourselves if we want to right? There's all these things out there. Uh, We generally have affluence and access and opportunity to do all sorts of things. And we're being tempted constantly by the fallen world around us. And so we read it, please Darius. And that reminds us of something very important. We're reminded that we are called to a much higher way of living, When we read, it pleased Darius, that's the low road, right? He's going to take the low road. We want to take the high road. And the high road of heaven is is not the one that ends in ruin. It's the one that we're supposed to be walking on. And on that road, we're not out to please ourselves, but we are meant to please the Lord. The goal of my life, the goal of your life, according to Scripture, is that we please the Lord, our God, our Creator, and Savior. That's the deal. For example, Ephesians 5.10 says, carefully determine what pleases the Lord. That's a commandment for you and for me. 
Paul is writing to the church and he says, hey, you, carefully determine what pleases the Lord. And then Paul also said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, so whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. So not only in the future will we be pleasing the Lord by worshiping him and casting our crowns at his feet, he says, hey, in this body too, your goal is to please not yourself, but the Lord. And that was definitely Daniel's goal. And that's yet another Bible truth he lives out for us. Verse 2, and over these satraps, three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. And so over the 120 what we would call governors, there were three what we would call presidents or prime ministers. And their main function, as stated here, was to keep the other government officials from constantly ripping off the king and the palace. I think that's funny. Uh, You know, Darius, Darius is a really interesting character to me. Uh, on, on sometimes, sometimes it seems like he's not thinking at all. Uh, sometimes you see, yeah, actually he is thinking, hey, these are the guys, these are the guys in charge. I'm going to leave them in charge. They seem like, you know, guys that can do the job. But we need to appoint these other three guys so that these guys aren't robbing me blind all the time because, after all, it's the government and that's what they're going to do. <laughs> that's the idea. Now, remember, these satraps weren't necessarily loyal to Darius or Persia. They're hired guns. And like every human government, theft and corruption were all too easily wielded to benefit officials in positions like this. And Darius knew it. Everybody knew it. So he said, here's what we need. We need three guys above these 120 guys to make sure that they're not ripping me off too bad. Now, luckily for Darius, he had Daniel. He had a guy who had the know-how and the courage to lead circumspectly. Everyone knew Daniel would run a tight ship and that he wouldn't tolerate embezzlement or corruption. But as readers, we also know Daniel to be fair and thoughtful, even generous to those around him. Think back to some of the old stories from many decades ago. Think back when they were going to kill all the wise men. And Daniel, he could have just saved himself or just himself and his three friends, but he says, hey, he tells the captain of the guard, hey, don't kill any of the wise men. And he extends that sort of benefit that Nebuchadnezzar was offering to one person. He says, well, I want that extended to everybody. And so we know Daniel was thoughtful. We know that he was gracious. We know that he was generous. But we also know that he was absolutely circumspect. He was not going to look the other way on the kind of corruption that these guys wanted to operate under. Now, as readers, we also know that, um, that Daniel uh, was really mindful of the things that were going on and what people were doing around him. And you know, to me, this is an encouragement. Godly people in the Bible are well-rounded people. Think about Daniel. He's circumspect, he's full of integrity, he runs a tight ship, he's thoughtful, he's gracious, he's generous, Uh, he's well-rounded. Of course, the characters in the Bible that we admire, they have their flaws, but if they were a tree, they aren't the kind of tree that only has fruit on one side or coming off of one branch. At the old house we used to live in, we had three citrus trees out front, and there was something wrong with them. They had some kind of disease or whatever, but the one in particular, there was like one-third section that would leaf and give fruit, 
right? And the rest of the tree was either all scraggly or just looked rotten or something was wrong with it. And guess what I didn't want to eat off of? That tree, because I'm thinking there's something wrong here. When you look at a fruit tree, the whole tree is meant to be growing and bearing fruit. And the same is true of a godly person. A godly person, as we see them in the Bible and as described in the Bible, is a well-rounded person, where every part is growing as being attended to by the Lord. It's not like, well, you know, this particular aspect of my life, I'm really bearing a lot of fruit, and over here, the rest of it, I don't bear any spiritual fruit of all, at all. That's not how it works. And so God develops the whole person. While there's no indication that Daniel asked for this job, in fact, I'm guessing he didn't really want this job, it was all too obvious that he was made for the job, right? So we know that in the last chapter, Daniel wasn't working in the government anymore, he wasn't part of the palace anymore, the king didn't even know who he was, he was probably in retirement, enjoying just, hey, I finally somehow made it through from being a teenager all the way till maybe I was 70 years old. I somehow made it through life in Babylon with my integrity and without compromising and being used by God. Wow. And now he's retired. And now they pull him back in. He's back as part of the machine again. I'm guessing a guy like Daniel is thinking, you know, Lord, I could also just go back to Jerusalem, right? And that's not what the Lord had planned for him. And so I'm guessing he didn't want the job, but it was obvious. He's made for this job. If you asked everybody in the kingdom, hey, we need somebody to run this vessel well and make sure that people are doing the right thing, every single person would vote for the, the same person if they were being honest. They'd say, well, Daniel's the guy. There aren't any other contenders. He runs unopposed if, he, if people were being honest, right? And so... We see that he was gifted and equipped and positioned by God to do this job. And you know, the same is true for you and me. God doesn't see Christians like drone ants. You ever watch ants, like especially if they pick up the trail and they pick up you know, some sweet or some spilled honey or something like that. Uh, have you ever disturbed a line of drone ants? You know, they're carrying all that food back to the colony and that line quickly paced. If you disrupt that line and smash one of those drones, do any of the other ants care? They do not care one little bit. They just keep going. The other ants don't care. The queen doesn't care. It doesn't matter at all because that's just some drone ant. Well, that's not how God organizes the church. That's not how he sees you as one of his people. Rather, the New Testament describes you as being specifically gifted, gifted on purpose by God who knows your name and has the hairs of your head numbered. Your life is made for a specific work in a specific place in a specific time, and we're to discover those things individually as we walk with God. And as we live together and work together as a corporate body of believers, we help discover each other's gifts and help each other serve in the ways that God has carved out for us. And so God doesn't see you as some just worker bee who's, who you're just a number or you're just a cog. That's not it at all. God sees you uh, individually and personally, and he has a specific work for you that he's equipped you for and gifted you for and wants you for. Verse three, this, then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and the satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. As always, Daniel's relationship with the Lord made a real, tangible difference in his regular life. The spirit within him made him a great man. Notice, it was not the number of followers he had. In fact, Daniel had very few followers. If Daniel had a Twitter feed, he'd have zero followers. Nobody, none of these other guys liked Daniel. 
He wasn't looking for popularity. He was not popular, right? Uh, And so Daniel had very few fans or even friends at this point. Some of the scholars speculate his three friends were probably dead by now. We don't see them working in the kingdom and we don't see them, you know, standing up for Daniel at all. It's beyond uh, what I'm willing to believe to think that they had suddenly turned corrupt with these other ones. So they're probably gone. And so he's standing alone. And we see that Daniel's a great man, the greatest man in the greatest kingdom on the earth. And the secret to his greatness has been given to us over and over again throughout the book. The spirit within him, everybody recognizes it. Hey, this guy has an excellent spirit. Hey, you're full of an excellent spirit. Hey, the spirit within you, that's what made him a great man. It's easy for us to get cheated by the culture we live in, which is trying to convince us all the time that greatness is measured in likes or material wealth or worldly success. And it's just not true. The great men and women of the Bible are those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Some were kings and some were slaves. The status didn't matter. Uh, It's the spirit that matters. And we see it in Daniel. Because of the spirit in him, his life made a real lasting impact even when he wasn't really setting out to make an impact. He's just doing his job. I don't think Daniel thought of himself as Jeremiah or thought of himself as Isaiah. He's like, I'm a government worker. I go to my job. I do what's right. And these things start happening around me, and I just live as a believer in these situations, and God builds this incredible testimony in me. He didn't set out to be, in our parlance, Billy Graham or to be you know, something great. He's just living and doing his job, and because he was full of God's spirit, he's a great man. Uh, Daniel didn't vie for this job. He just lived his quiet life, but it was a quiet life full of God's dynamite power. I love how, you know, Bible teachers will point out in the New Testament, they talk about the dunamis power of the Holy Spirit, God's super mega dynamite power. And it's true, though, that's the words that the, the Holy Spirit inspired to be used, that the Holy Spirit filling you as a Christian is dynamite power. And that as you live your regular quiet life, it's just God's dynamite power is blowing up in all of these little situations that you don't really need to worry about. You just need to walk with the Lord and then he accomplishes his work through you. And so because of this, Daniel was not only a spiritual man, but he's a very capable man. And he's not a deadbeat believer at all. He's in the thick of it. He's being used. He's getting tapped on the shoulder all the time and God's able to use him. Verse four, so the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful nor was there any error or fault found in him. And then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. We see that these guys had been set over the whole kingdom, right? We were told that earlier, but that wasn't nearly enough for them. They're set over the whole kingdom, but it wasn't enough. Quick lesson here, the sinful heart of man is insatiable. It always wants more, no matter what. It's never going to settle. God gives contentment and sin cannot. I'm also guessing that these guys had a nice little scam running. These are smart guys who knew how to set up systems. We'll see that in a minute here. I'm sure they had a a good scam worked out for how they could rob from the palace without being noticed until Daniel gets in the way. I mean, he's like Serpico to these guys. We can't have a guy like that around uh, if you're trying to rip off the new king. So these guys get together, they start having meetings, gathering data, orchestrating a conspiracy. What they discovered was that Daniel was unimpeachable when it came to his behavior. 
But they also figured out something pretty remarkable. They realized that if they could get Daniel into a corner where he would either have to choose between his life and his God, he would undoubtedly choose his God. That is pretty amazing. Daniel's faith was so consistent and real and public that these lying, cheating sinners understood this guy will forfeit his own life rather than dishonor his God. That's pretty amazing. We're told that Daniel was faithful because he was faithful, it says. Daniel proves to us you can be faithful in a hostile work environment. You can be faithful in a government job. You can be faithful among unbelieving coworkers. You can be faithful when your life's plan doesn't work out the way you thought it was going to. Daniel was, and the results were spectacular. Verse six, so these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to them, King Darius, live forever. Notice these guys are always together. They act like a pack of hyenas. Uh, they gather in a frenzy here, rushing to do evil like Solomon talked about in Proverbs 1. Verse 7, all the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and the satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Like I said before, sometimes it's hard to get a good read on what's going on with Darius. Uh, on the one hand, it seems pretty obvious, right, that these guys were trying to pull a fast one on him. Right? It reminds me of um, like Disney villains when they show up and they come in. Well, that's the guy, the guy that's like dressed in all black and like stroking like some kind of crystal ball. Maybe watch out for that guy, you know? These guys are like Jafar. Think of Aladdin and Jafar. 125 Jafars come in and are like, oh, king, like doing weird stuff with snake stabs and things. That's what's happening here. And so. Uh, we also point out that Daniel was conspicuously absent from this meeting. Hey, we're all here together. Hey, where's the one guy I'm thinking of putting in charge of everything? Well, he's not here. Don't worry about the fact that he's not here. Uh, conspicuously absent, although they did imply that he also signed off on this legislation. I had to wonder, though, how Darius thought this could be a good idea. Of course, ancient kings were much more comfortable with being called divine than leaders are today. But, you know, he's a pagan idolater, just like everybody else. He worships their weird pantheon of gods like all the other people did. What would Marduk or the other gods think about this kind of behavior? Wouldn't this anger them? These were the kinds of religions where it was like, hey, if we do the wrong thing, Marduk's going to, like, destroy all our crops or not send rain or is going to do all this weird stuff to us. And so what's, man, what's Darius thinking? Now, it's possible that the satraps sold this law as more of a move to consolidate power and establish the throne and say, hey, you're new in town. You need to make sure people are loyal to you. Do this, and it'll kind of make sure everybody's on board, maybe. We don't get their whole conversation. But what I find most interesting about Darius's part of the story is seeing how quickly a person outside the protection of God just gets taken advantage of by sin, just getting ripped off by sin nonstop. He may wear the crown, but he's bound in the devil's prison, right? He's powerless in this entire story. He's making decisions to please himself, and in no time flat, he's dishonoring his own gods, oppressing his entire kingdom, and being completely bamboozled by his own officials so they can rob him. 
That's what happens when a person uh, is a captive to the devil and to their sin. But he signs the law, and it seems Daniel's fate with it. Verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. So Daniel did the same thing he always did. Nothing changed. He didn't do less, and he didn't do more. He didn't compromise and say, okay, well, for a month I could just be a silent praying person. I could be a prayer closet person. Uh, And, you know, I can have a private faith for a month. What's the big deal? That would have been sin for Daniel. But, you know, Daniel also didn't say, oh, you passed this law? Well, then I'm going to throw my windows open and get myself a megaphone and make a big show of my civil disobedience. Now, notice how it's written. The windows were already open according to the way that it was written. It doesn't say that he went home and opened his windows to defy angrily everybody. Well, this is an important point. Why take time to point this out? Well, commentators will point out that, you know, Daniel just did the same thing he always did. And we live in a time where it's very popular to be a loud, angry resistor right now. Everybody's resisting something. Everybody's fighting something. Everybody's making a loud, angry, you know, exclamation about something. That's not what Daniel did. And even in the church, there are some who suggest we need to seek out suffering in order to truly be Christians. I just read a new book from a popular Christian author and pastor talking about how you need to pray for suffering if you're a real Christian. A real Christian wants and prays for suffering. Are you a real Christian? And that's not some obscure book. It's like a mainstream book. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not biblical. We see Daniel living out his convictions the exact same way he always had. Now, that included a very public faith and a regular communion with God, of course, but we don't see him moving towards compromise or towards showboating, right? He's not worrying, but he's also not scheming. He's just being the same Daniel he had always been. In this verse, his prayer is characterized by the thanks that he was giving. Man, thankful in Babylon, while murderers are on their way to your house. That's the kind of faith I want to have. The description in verse 10 always also brings out Daniel's trust and belief in the Lord and his familiarity with Scripture. In the tradition of Solomon in the book of Chronicles, he prayed toward Jerusalem. In the tradition of David in the Psalms, he prayed three times a day. And we know he had a copy of Jeremiah. We'll see that later on in the book. And he believed what the Lord promised in Jeremiah 29, that if God's people pray, the Lord will hear them and respond. And so in this little verse, we see again that Daniel was a man who loved the word of God. He had a good and great trust that God would move in his life and that he was faithful to the Lord no matter what his circumstances were. Verse 11, then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. This must have been pretty funny. There's not 120 of us here right now. Imagine there were 120 Jafars outside the window right now. And they're all looking in, watching and taking notes, writing down who's here. You think we would notice that? I think we would notice it. Uh, And so we're going to be told in a minute here that they report to the king, he did it three times that day. You know what that means? That means they were there all day outside of his downstairs window. I'm guessing Daniel gave him a friendly wave. After his lunch break, he's like, hey, guys, I'm going to pray again. Can you keep it down? Uh, I'm I'm, I'm thinking he probably said, I'll see you guys at the office later. This is kind of comical if it wasn't so insidious. Verse 12. 
And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. The satraps weren't just springing their trap on Daniel. We see that they're also springing it on Darius. He wasn't going to be on board with this. They knew that, and so they had to make him an accomplice without him realizing it. But he absolutely was an accomplice in this sin without even knowing it. Uh, Outside the protection of God, he was easy to pick off and used like a pawn for their evil plot. Verse 14, and the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. And he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. The king was not upset with Daniel, he was upset with himself. He had done a stupid, selfish thing, and now he was guilty of sending an innocent man to a gruesome death. He was responsible, and he knew it. He worked hard to find a legal loophole, but it was no good. Unlike our legal system, which can take decades to execute someone on death row, the Persian custom was to visit the sentence on someone the day it was handed out. Uh, And here we get a little sort of snapshot of the human condition. Man is condemned to death. Whether a person thinks that's deserved or not, it's true. That's just reality. There's nothing any man can do to deliver even one condemned individual from that death. Not even the king of Persia, the king of the world uh, empire, cannot deliver one man from death. Only God can deliver man from his coming doom. At the end of the day, the satraps show up again to confront Darius because time's a wasting. Verse 15. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no decree or statute with the ki- which the king establishes may be changed. So man, at this point, these guys are dictating. Who's in charge here? These guys are dictating to him. I mean, they're right up to the line of blackmail. They're effectively saying, hey, you're going to do this. You better do it now. After all, you have to do it. I wonder, how do these guys think this is going to turn out for them? Okay, so Daniel gets killed And now he knows that these guys are out to scam him all the time. You know, they're not thinking. But again, they they show us, Proverbs 1, how sin blinds and deceives and ruins. They're deep into Proverbs 1 right now. Verse 16, so the king gave the command and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. And then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and then with the signet of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. I imagine that uh, Darius must have heard about Daniel's God either from Daniel himself or from stories told to him. Either way, he must have heard that this God had power, that he was a deliverer, that he defends the innocent, and he will, if necessary, depose kings and topple whole kingdoms. He would have heard all these things. Now imagine you're Darius. You've heard about this God, and people are telling you, hey, yeah, this Daniel, yeah, let me tell you what what his God has done in the last 70 years. Let me tell you the kinds of things that happened with his friends. Let me tell you about the night you came to Babylon. Daniel showed up and said, my God decided that this king is going to die, and this king is in charge now. And now imagine 
that you just put your seal on the stone next to these 122 other guys. I mean, there was a line drawn in the sand and you are most definitely on the wrong side of that line. And the next time we see him, no wonder he's unable to sleep, he's unable to eat, he's in a bad way to be sure. Now as we close tonight, notice the king's description of Daniel. He says, you serve your God continually. Very interesting. That's how he saw Daniel. Remember, Darius was thinking about putting the whole kingdom under Daniel's care. And when he looked at Daniel, he says, Daniel, I know you're not serving me. You're serving your God. You serve him continually. He knew Daniel's allegiance was not to Persia, wasn't to Babylon, but to his Lord. And still, he was the best man to run the kingdom because he wasn't a hypocrite. He wasn't useless. He wasn't selfish. He was capable and spiritual and full of wisdom. Daniel was full of dynamic power, and so his life was dynamic. He lives out these promises and principles we read about throughout the Bible. And remember this, Daniel is not meant to be an exaggeration to us. He is meant to be an example to us. Daniel is just what God does in the life of a willing believer. Daniel's not in some special class. He's just a believer like you're a believer. And God does a specific work through his life the way God wants to do a specific work through your life. He's not an exaggeration, he's an example. An example we follow by living like he did, being faithful, trusting God, loving his word, being in prayer, not giving in to selfishness or worry or scheming, just living as believers and discovering what God wants to do through us in the ways he has gifted us in whatever time and place we find ourselves in. That's the deal, amen?